Hello and welcome to the pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jolyn Drennan and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today on the podcast, we meet Jolyn and her family, skirt a couple's fight, and begin a conversation about prevention. Then I interview Rebecca Wojkowski of New Futures about the biennium. But first, Jolyn, as our maiden show about family in the Granite State, how's yours doing? What's it like out there? What's it like out there for my family? It's crazy. <laughs> no, we are we are doing we're doing well. My family's doing well, um, but we are you know we're managing just like everybody else. It's a new uh, a new world, um, so we are navigating school and working from home and remote learning and back to school and you know just managing activities and trying to keep my son busy and and your son is what seven now? Uh, he'll be seven in June. And how are you balancing all this? Last time we Zoomed, I'm pretty sure I heard a couple's fight in the background. <laughs> you did. No, we're, I mean, we're, we're doing well. We're in a school district that um, has managed to find a way for the kids to go back to school um, and do it safely. And so my son has been back full time in person since September. And so, but there are, the, so we have the option of he could either be fully remote or you could be in, in person. And we, we chose to have him go back in person because he needs that kind of structure. What do you mean by that specifically? What, like what kind of structure? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the routine. It's the, it's the interaction, the, the, the personal interaction with his teachers um he does have an IEP so he has um services he has speech and language um services that he that he gets that it just wasn't the same um when we were remote learning last year um and then you know he gets the opportunity to see his friends and interact and does seeing friends calm him down yeah it's like they just need to express that energy and you know be in that social interaction yeah yeah Yeah. he's super happy so otherwise I mean the kid if if I allowed it he would sit in in the playroom and he would be you know playing video games all day, which that has happened. I mean, it's just a reality of the situation, though. Do you have concerns about his development and how he's progressing? I think um, for what they were faced with, I think this our school district did a really great job last year of just go from like we're in person one day to now we're completely online. And last year it wasn't um, it wasn't instructor led. And so self-paced and self-dictated. Yeah. And it was trying to navigate through like all these different websites, screen time and then try to. And then also he wasn't um, getting the level of services um, that he, for the special education services that he um Required, he really he required, um, although they were trying, you know, and they did, uh, he, but he, there was just a period of time where he was, you know, it was a loss for him. It was a loss um, of just understanding why, like, why is, you know, why are we not in school anymore? Um, and when can I go back? And when can I see my friends? And I miss my teachers. And so there was like actual grief. And then we were really concerned about him. Um, backsliding with, you know, just probably like behavioral progress and his speech and language right. and um, and then just academics in general. And it all seems so heightened now, at least it does for my wife and me. You know, it feels like we're solely responsible so for so much of their development and their education. So, I mean, we're together a lot. I feel like no one ever leaves the house ever. Um, <laughs> you know, we go obviously outside and go on walks and stuff, but I think um, it's there's actually a lot of things that we, we've been able to spend a lot more time together, like quality time together. You kind of realize what the things that you don't need, the distractions that, you know, we used to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, my husband's home a lot and I think he's had more time off from work, you know, this year than he's had in 12. 
have you had to reconfront your relationship? I mean, I'm at home a lot. And prior, I mean, there's this agreed upon shared space that you have or every family has. And then there's this kind of sacred space that you carve out for yourself, which yeah. seems to be completely gone because of this pandemic. Yeah, that you have access to. So yeah, we, we have had to kind of negotiate access because it's like now, because I am working from home. And so they assume, you know, my husband and my son, that because I'm home, that I'm available. <laughs> Where I to remind them, like, you know, like, you actually wouldn't have access to me if I was in my office right now. So, like, can we can we shut that door and, like, you figure out where your socks are? Or, like, you can make him a sandwich, Tom, and you don't need me to, <laughs> to go and do that. You know, like, those, so, are those things. So, how you navigate it? How, how do you get past that kind of thing? Because every family has their glue that keeps them together. Kind of that resilience factor. Like, I've been thinking about my family a lot lately, and it's it is just irreverent sense of humor well that and food um so i think that what's holding us all together is i would say patience we've had to really you know um really access our you know our our patience with each other and with our son and make sure that you know um even though we're frustrated um you know, with the limitations and restrictions that we have right now, which are, you know, nothing compared to, you know, what, what other people are experiencing, um, that we still, we have to be patient with, with our son, um, because he's experiencing, um, this, this pandemic and all of these, you know, the restrictions on him in a completely different way than we are. Right. And so it's just tempering our patience. And then yes, absolutely humor. Just an example this morning at 5am, my son was up I was asleep and he came in the room huffing like <sighs> like doing this big this big thing and I'm like yes Wiley half asleep didn't open my eyes and he's like mom do I have a photo album and I said yes and then he just kept at me like just staring me in the face like well can I see it <laughs> and I was like well um Wiley can you know can I'm asleep <laughs> can we talk about this later but he's so adamant because that's like the, that's his focus point right now right now they're on spring or whatever winter break and so but he's like this is what I woke up and thought about this morning and so and so instead of me being you know trying to be I would be aggravated if anybody else had woken yeah. me up to ask but just being like it just now I have this like trigger response of like okay wait a minute like don't I mean it's it's responding not reacting it's so interesting that you say that because every time I react to my son rather than take a breath and respond I can see him start to close down um, and really becomes kind of unavailable for whatever it is I'm trying to tell him yeah they feel automatically feel bad this is my fault am I in trouble and they don't know how and so how you respond is essentially teaching them what how to behave man i'm so glad we can talk about this stuff because i feel half the time that i am reacting to something i'm trying to correct but you know you have more experience in this field can you tell us a little bit about that um i've worked in social services for um, over 15 years in just different capacities primarily with with adjudicated youth which actually it's funny because the separation between like my professional life and my parenting life there there really isn't it um so i've i've worked in direct service provider, you know, working with, with, uh, with children and families. I've worked with, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals transitioning out of the prison system. Um, and then my most recent, um, position before I was at the Children's Trust, I was working for the, the New Hampshire Human Trafficking Task Force. Um, and I was doing uh, direct service um, with um, victims of sex and labor trafficking. Of all the populations that I've worked with, the, the common thread has always been um, 
just a, a lack or a, a weak foundation. Um, you know, they're coming from broken homes or maybe they came out of poverty or they experienced a lot of trauma. Um, and so when I took this position with the Children's Trust, I was really excited about it because it was the first time um, that I realized that like there's this other thing out there besides intervention, it's prevention. Right. And so if, if everybody has what they need, if they have food, they have the social connections, they, you know, the, the parents are resilient and, um, and they have all these really basic needs are met, then, you know, the children can thrive and maybe they wouldn't get to a point where they would need to see me as a direct service provider. And, you know, when we talk about this, it's often talked about as if you created your own foundations, which is not how it is. Foundations are built over time and they're largely dependent on the community that you're in and the investment in those communities. Yeah. If you prevent, then you don't have to intervene. Exactly. You know, if you prevent by, you know, giving people what they need and supporting and really investing in families, then you don't have to intervene as often. Yeah. So I am curious about what's on the horizon for families in New Hampshire. What's out there that's a cause of concern? What's out there to celebrate? Can you give us kind of a, a lay of the land? So this is where I get, I'm, I'm really excited for New Hampshire. I'm, I'm really excited to see the, the, there's the, this turn that's happening, this change and shift from, um, constantly, you know, the, the constant focus on, on intervention. And there's this, there's a shift that's happening that's going towards prevention. People, it's like, you know, our state leadership, um, legislators, um, and, you know, everyone, DHHS, everyone is kind of realizing we can invest in giving everyone, you know, parent education and things and just assistance and, and support and everyone, not just specific populations, but everyone across the board. Um, that, that you have that you have equitable access to education and food and um, and housing and all of these things that there's that the shift is happening in New Hampshire where the state is investing in services that are preventative versus just trying to band-aid something you know down the line like you know if we if we'd address things earlier on then we wouldn't have um, you know this this overload on the foster care system right. you know and so I think that people are trying, starting to realize that and so and one of the examples of this is the investment in um, our kinship navigation program because mm-hmm. um, that's a preventative it's a preventative program so where where families um, are, are stepping up to take care of children who maybe they lost their parents because of um, you know a, a, an overdose or maybe they're incarcerated or they are um, you know, struggling with addiction or maybe they're in recovery or treatment and the families are stepping up and taking the children in. they're preventing entries into the foster care system. And so we're supporting those families with this program Mm -hmm. and the state is investing, you know, public funding, federal funding into it. And that's, it's so exciting to see. And the partnerships that have had to form around that, you know, the family resource center spread throughout the state and they're employing kinship navigators so we can help people find services, you know, grand families, grandma, grandpa taking care of their kids, kids, aunts and uncles stepping up. It's really incredible to watch the way people help out. So what about challenges? There are likely things that we have concerns about. We do. We have some challenges. I think, um, you know, the, the governor's biennium budget has um, is come up and um, there was a significant cut to um, funding for family assistance programs. And so where there is all this like forward movement in the, mm-hmm. you know, like in the actual workforce and in the field, um, you know, there's a significant amount of funding that was just cut <laughs> to yeah. it. So it's like we've made this commitment to, um, 
right. do prevention, but then, you know, on the backside, cut the funding that is required to actually make yeah. that progress. And so that is um, disappointing, but I think that, you know, there's, there's other ways that we can, you know, we can advocate. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of support for family assistance. And no, I, I do think you're right. There's a lot of momentum toward this. I think, yeah, I, I think that I, I am maybe I'm optimistic. I'm well, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think that our, our state leadership, once they realize um, the importance of the programs that are funded, um, with some of this money that, that was, um, zeroed out. Um, I think that, you know, they'll compensate, they'll, they'll, they'll make that change, um, because they are so invested, um, in families and now more than ever families need support now more than ever. Um, you know, pandemic, we just, but in general across the board and really it shouldn't take a pandemic. To, to, um, to bring that to the to the forefront. But I think that this, you know, our current situation, the pandemic has highlighted the disparities. Yeah. Yeah. Lot to think about. Well, when we come back, we're going to be talking to Rebecca Boykowski of New Futures. Don't go anywhere. Rebecca Wojkowski from New Futures. She's the Kids Count Policy Coordinator. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Rebecca. And uh, I want to start off by talking about your role as the Kids Count Policy Coordinator. What do you do in that capacity? Great. That's a great question. Um, so first and foremost, I um, handle all of New Futures early childhood policy and advocacy. I'm a registered lobbyist. Um, so I'm a lobbyist for good. Uh, I know sometimes out there that term gets um, uh, thrown around, but I'm a, I'm a registered lobbyist. We have an advocacy campaign. Our goal is to improve the health and wellness of New Hampshire's residents, and my work is all about kids and families. So I work with our state legislature to inform them about public policy decisions that will positively impact um, the life and of our life and the support that our kids and families have in New Hampshire. So it's really important work. Obviously, the uh, mayor's biennium budget dropped, and I am not a policy person. Um, and when I look at this conversation about what's in there, why are we scrambling? Why are advocacy agencies across the state scrambling? I think I need some guidance. So it would be really helpful if you could back up and quickly explain the process at arriving at a budget for the state of New Hampshire. Sure. So um, the first thing that can be scary around the budget process, it happens every two years in New Hampshire, the governor releases a budget. Um, it can sometimes include, like this year, some cuts to some really important programs and services around the state. But the good news is that the process is complicated, and that's a funny thing to say, right? But that means that there are so many points of intervention to which we can advocate to ensure that the budget that's released um, when the Senate, the House, and the governor all agree hopefully in June, is one that truly supports the programs that we know are impactful um, to New Hampshire residents. And when does this process start? Because like you said, it's very complicated. It has a lot of stages and it's every two years, which seems like by the time you release your budget, you're already angling for a new budget. What can people expect that, that way? That is somewhat the, the 
the truth of the matter. Um, but to give you some clear dates, so the governor released um, his budget on uh, February 11th. Now the budget will go to the legislative phase. So the legislative phase of the budget process begins on February 15th and ends on June 30th of odd numbered years, right? Um, and then it, through the legislative phase, it first starts with the House of Representatives. You know, that's our 400 member um, New Hampshire House. And they'll tackle the, governor budget, the governor's proposed budget first um, in a number of different ways. So the budget goes through three um, divisions of, that include different parts. So uh, Division 3 is um, generally health and human services, where we find a lot of the programs that support kids and families. Um, and then once the House creates their budget, it gets sent to the Senate, who breaks down the budget um, in a number of different departments as well. And then there's either a, um, generally there's the creation of, you have the, now you have a governor's budget, you have the House's budget, and you have the Senate's budget. And then if the Senate and the House do not agree, they go into a process called committees of conference, where then they come out with a compromise budget that they send to the governor's office. The governor then can approve or veto the budget. Um, if the governor vetoes the budget, then everyone continues on a continuing resolution, so we don't get a new budget until we can all agree. So um, while that sounds like a lunky process, um, it is for a lot of good reasons. We want to make sure that we're talking about um, every part of the budget as it affects residents in the state and that we are getting the um, best budget we can to um, improve health and wellness of New Hampshire's residents, but also to support really important programs. So we don't want a budget process that is quick and simple because people wouldn't have an opportunity to raise their voice, to draw attention to why investments in certain areas are so important. Um, so that's a quick little bumpy overview for you of a bumpy process. No, that's wonderful. I, it, it actually helps me. I mean, there's, there's a, a point where I do gloss over, but I think that's part of the process is understanding that it does have a lot of moving parts and that there are a lot of points of entry for people who are concerned, people who want to voice support. And I think that's what I wanted to talk about most with you was, you know, we've spent this last week, like I said, scrambling and um, trying to rally a lot of troops around certain causes. And I'd love love to get your take on what's happening in this budget. Why is it a cause for concern around families and family service agencies in the state of New Hampshire? And then later, what can we do about it if we do want to raise our own voice? Well, um, that's a really great question. And I think that um, coming into this budget session, we all know we've been living um, and I've been pandemic parenting, right, for a year. Um, we weren't sure from a state perspective how COVID-19 and the safer at home orders and everything else going on would impact revenues or um, incoming revenues for the budget because the budget is a financial document, right? So we anticipated there having to be cuts. We are lucky in New Hampshire that um, the revenues were not as badly hit as in some other states. So when we have less revenue, we can fund less things. So going into the budget um, you know, process, we knew that there were going to be some cuts. Historically, and this is true on a national level as it is in New Hampshire, unfortunately, those family-serving programs tend to be the first ones that are cut. 
Um, we also have to understand that New Hampshire's legislature changes quite a bit every two years. Um, we have a large number of folks. Um, it's a citizen legislature. They're paid $100 a year. So we don't get a lot. Uh, the majority aren't long-term serving um, representatives that have historical understanding. Um, I think, too, although this is changing with a lot of coordinated advocacy in New Hampshire, there's not always a lot of robust education around why funding these programs, which we're really talking about primary prevention programs, are so important for reducing long-term costs for the state, improving health and wellness. Um, so the job really rests on the um, shoulders of advocates and individuals to ensure that our lawmakers um, are well aware of why we need to sustain investments. We have been working in a coordinated way, I mean, in the past four and a half years to provide that long-term understanding education um, and build champions within the legislature. So some of the investments that we're defending right now are new. So that just takes a little bit of extra work. I wanted to um, make sure that I also said that on top of this budget process, we have a legislative session with bills. So we've been scrambling because there are a number of bills being introduced that are really important. Um, all of the um, bills that pass that have an appropriation have to get worked in the budget too. So if we're looking at, um, you know, your secondary question is, um, I think how we can get involved and why we should. There are so many opportunities, small and big, to which you're, you could lend your voice that really help the process. Um, so, you know, it is understandable with all the unknown factors that we would go to a place, um, we would find ourselves in a place where the budget might not be exactly what we want. Um, but I can't underscore and highlight enough the ability and power that we have really to raise our voice, to bring attention, um, to ensure that, you know, we end up with a budget that actually is what we want to see. We don't lose critical programming um, and that we can continue to build a better system um, for primary prevention and for kids and families um, within the state. That's great. And you mentioned a, um, you know, raising your voice, which seems like, you know, you, you turn on the TV these days and you can just scream at the news, but that stays within your house. So how do we empower people to actually reach out? What are the vehicles? Uh, where do they exist and how, how are folks expected to access them? This is a really easy question. I'm so glad that um, you asked it. Go check out New Futures website or go check out any advocacy organization like NAMI or others that may be um, in a issue area of interest or impact to your life. So um, New Futures provides advocacy trainings on a regular basis. We have this. They're all free. Um, they're all done via Zoom now. Um, but we have a training menu and we framed it as a training menu because you may just want an appetizer to dip your feet in um, what it means to be an advocate, or you really want to go through a multi-session process to um, learn how to testify before a Senate or House committee. You want to talk to the governor in a meeting about a particular issue. Um, our real goal is raising your voice for advocacy, but not yelling, um, as you mentioned. So because many people feel that, um, you know, why would it matter to me? Why would it matter to my elected official what's happening in my life? And all I can say is it does matter. To go back again, our legislature is huge. Our representatives are not experts necessarily in the fields and committees that they sit on. You probably will bump into them in your grocery store, um, at your transfer station, um, you know, getting gas. And it's 
prime opportunity to talk to them. Um, the biggest thing that question that often comes up when we are doing trainings is, well, I'm nervous about talking um, to my representative. Again, I don't know that they would listen to me. Um, and what we try to build within our advocates is that trust that yes, what you have to say is very important. No, you shouldn't apologize and begin by sorry to bother you. Um, but they are representing you in um, our government. So it is their duty to listen to their constituents. Um, and beyond that, that, I will tell you that if you call them, they won't answer their phone. Um, sometimes it's their wife, sometimes you know it's their husband, um, but you, their message will get to them and then 99% of the time they'll call you back. Um, so again, to recap, New Futures has a wonderful menu of different trainings that are geared to developing your advocacy skills from small to large in that we teach you how to write a letter to your representative, um, provide a prompt on how to make your first call, um, as well as de developing the skills you need to stand before or sit before right now because everything is remote, um, a, a legislative committee to provide testimony on a bill or the budget um, in an area that is an issue area that means something to you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I very much appreciate the explanation. And if I'm not mistaken, too, specifically to the area of Family Resource Centers and Family Support New Hampshire, Moms Rising in New Hampshire is looking for stories about how people have been positively affected by visiting these agencies, which are sometimes referred to as FRCs. So uh, we'll be sure to connect folks listening to the link in the content of this post uh, so we can set people up to have their voice heard and please do reach out to new futures if you get a chance thank you so much rebecca i appreciate your time i know you're busy and um you know this has been great let's do it again soon okay thank you Bye.